0: Hello, and welcome back to Assassinations Podcast. This week we're launching our final investigation of the season. Can you believe we're almost at the end of Season 2? Over the last few months, we've explored the dark world of espionage, and investigated assassinations, confirmed, alleged, and attempted, from China, Russia, Bulgaria, Egypt, Poland, the United States, and Great Britain. We've travelled in the company of spies through the First and Second World Wars, the Israeli-Arab Conflict, the Cold War, and beyond. I've really enjoyed digging into these cases, and I'm proud to say that I think we've been able to uncover some new details, and, in some cases, we've reinterpreted known evidence in a new and exciting way. I'm now starting to plan for Season 3. I have a lot of ideas for future seasons, but I'm excited to let you know that I think I've decided what direction I want to take for next season. I'm still firming things up, but I should be able to announce the topic of our next season soon. For now, suffice it to say that Season 3 will look at contemporary assassinations that have troubling implications for the world we live in. And now we come right up to date with an apparent assassination attempt against the ex-Russian spy and MI6 agent, Sergei Skripal. A colonel in the Russian Military Intelligence Directorate, more commonly known as the GRU, Skripal betrayed his country to work as a British double agent during the 1990s. After years spying for the British, for which he was very well paid, Skripal was caught by his Russian bosses. Imprisoned in 2006, he was sent to Britain in 2010 as part of a spy swap. He seemed to be living a quiet life in a pretty corner of England until, in March 2018, a terrible and bizarre fate befell him. With his daughter, Yulia, he was seemingly poisoned with a nerve agent. And so we delve into the case of Sergei Skripal and the Poisoned Perfume. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings, and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. On the afternoon of the 4th of March 2018, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were sitting on a bench on a quiet street in the historic and picturesque city of Salisbury. It was clear to passers-by, however, that something was very, very wrong. There are various accounts of how the owls appeared that day, but none of them paint a pretty picture. Some said the owls were foaming at the mouth, drifting in and out of consciousness. Another passer-by said that Yulia was slumped on her father's shoulder. It just looked like she was asleep or passed out. He was sat bolt upright rocking back and forth while another witness said that sergey his head held up and his eyes closed was holding yulia to his chest he was talking to himself as if he was praying a family passing by took notice of this troubling scene and decided they had to try and do something one of them a 16-year-old girl named abigail mccourt rushed over to help she thought that the older man might be having a heart attack Abigail had recently completed a first aid training course and was ready to put her newly acquired skills to use. Fortunately, Abigail's mother was rather more qualified. Colonel Allison McCourt was the chief nursing officer of the British Army. She followed her daughter and quickly made an assessment of the situation. Colonel McCourt and Abigail provided first aid while an ambulance was called. The time was 4.15pm. Police and paramedics were on the scene within minutes. The Skripals were soon whisked away to hospital, while police cordoned off the area. Various things about their state and behaviour indicated that they might have overdosed on some drug. They weren't totally lucid, they were foaming at the mouth, they had difficulty moving, and one or both of the Skripals had vomited. Firefighters in protective hazmat suits were called in to clean the area, a common procedure in such a situation. The use of protective clothing when dealing with human waste and fluids, especially where there is a suspicion that an unknown drug might be involved, is quite standard. When Sergei and Yulia Skripal were admitted to Salisbury District Hospital at 5.15pm, Doctors also thought they might be dealing with two cases of opioid overdose. It did seem a bit incongruous. A 66-year-old man and a 33-year-old woman, both well-dressed, both incapacitated at the same time, sitting on a bench in the middle of town. But at this stage, there was nothing to indicate that the emergency room was dealing with anything other than the unfortunate case of the misuse of drugs. The synthetic opioid fentanyl was suspected. The symptoms broadly fit, and there had been other recent cases of fentanyl overdoses. It soon became clear, however, that this was not just another drug overdose, for it wouldn't be long before another person, this time a police officer, was admitted to Salisbury District Hospital with similar symptoms. Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey had been part of a police team sent to investigate the home of Sergei Skripal on the evening of March 4th. As would have been normal in any case when there was suspicion that an unknown narcotic might be present, perhaps in abundance, DS Bailey and other officers entered the property wearing specialist protective clothing. Not long after exiting the house, Bailey started to feel very ill. The following day, March 5th, he took himself to Salisbury District Hospital. D.S. Bailey's circumstances and symptoms set alarm bells ringing among the medical staff. There was now evidence that they might be dealing with a serious contamination rather than a problem with a one-off ingestion of some drug. And that contamination might very well be concentrated in an ordinary suburban home Of a very unusual denizen of Salisbury. Around this time, medical staff at the hospital were informed by government authorities that they might be dealing with a substance far more exotic than fentanyl. Experts from the nearby Porton Down Chemical and Biological Warfare Centre stepped in to report that a weapons-grade agent might have been used. These experts worked with doctors to make an assessment that all three patients, the Skripals and Sergeant Bailey were suffering from poisoning from some form of nerve agent. Meanwhile, teams of specially trained soldiers, marines, police officers and public health workers started to cordon off and meticulously examine several areas of Salisbury. The rapid involvement of personnel from Porton Down, the UK government's top secret biochemical research centre, indicates that the authorities were alive to the fact that Sergei Skripal might be the target of a plot to poison him, perhaps due to his espionage work. While the British media went into overdrive, speculating as to what might have happened, and already pointing the finger at the Putin administration in Russia, medical care for the Skripals and D.S. Bailey continued at Salisbury Hospital. On the 6th of March, Britain's National Counter-Terrorism Command, based in London, took over the investigation from the local police in Wiltshire. It was revealed that Sergei and Yulia had dined at a pizzeria and gone for a drink at a pub in the city centre just before they were discovered slouched on the bench. The two businesses and the area around the bench were sealed off with plastic sheeting and placed under guard. Naturally, there were concerns among many people in Salisbury that they too might have been contaminated. British authorities were at pains to reassure the public that there was very little risk to their health, merely suggesting that people who were concerned should make sure to thoroughly wash any clothes that they thought might be tainted with the as yet unknown toxin. This advice seemed very odd to a lot of people in Salisbury and around the country. On the one hand, the public was being told there had been a terrible poisoning with an unidentified but highly toxic substance. It had sent three people to hospital, and now hundreds of troops, cops, and medics in hazmat suits were all over town. But on the other hand, the government was pretty much saying, nothing to see here, just get on with your lives. In the tense atmosphere, no one, including the British government, seemed to have much of a clue as to what was going on. The only narrative that was being put forward with any consistency was that the Skripals were Russians, that Sergei had once been a Russian intelligence officer, and that, despite the lack of any evidence at this point, the hand of Putin might be involved. On March 12th, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, announced to Parliament that the investigators had identified a nerve agent called a Novichok. She declared that Novichok had been developed by the Soviet Union, and she claimed that the incident in Salisbury had to have been connected to Russia. Amid a febrile media atmosphere, the Prime Minister demanded an explanation from the Russian government. Two days later, May stated more concretely that Russia was responsible for the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal. The British government then publicly accused the Russian government of attempted murder, May announced a series of punitive measures against Russia, including the expulsion of diplomats. The British government expelled 23 Russians from the embassy in London, said to be spies working undercover. The Kremlin denied any responsibility in the poisoning of the Skrupals. The Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, requested that British authorities share any evidence they possessed so that Russian authorities could investigate if there was any connection with people in Russia. But the British refused to share any evidence. Amid growing tensions between London and Moscow, the Russian government complained that its diplomats were being denied access to Sergei and Yulia. Sergei holds dual Russian and British citizenship, while Yulia is a Russian citizen. She lived in Moscow and was visiting her father for two weeks having arrived on March 3rd, the day before the alleged Novichok poisoning. The Russians insisted that the British government's refusal to allow them access to Russian citizens was a breach of international and domestic law regarding consular access. The British government responded by saying that, while it would consider the Russian request, the Skripals did not want to meet with any Russian embassy staff. Victoria Skripal, the cousin of Yulia, applied for a visa to travel from Russia to the UK to visit her relatives in hospital, but the British government denied this request as well. Detective Sergeant Bailey remained in Salisbury District Hospital for two weeks before being discharged. He subsequently went off the radar for several months before returning to work later in 2018. The Scrupals remained in hospital, with little information as to their status, until After three weeks, the public was informed that Yulia had regained consciousness, but was still in a critical condition. Yulia was discharged on the 9th of April 2018, immediately going into protective custody. Again, the Russian government strongly requested that embassy staff be allowed to see Yulia. The Russian Foreign Minister stated that this was a perfectly normal request and that it was a breach of diplomatic relations to deny Russian embassy staff access to a Russian citizen in British custody, protective or not. And, again, the British refused the Kremlin's request. Sergei remained in a critical condition for another five weeks. He was eventually discharged from hospital on the 18th of May 2018. Like Yulia, He was spirited away into some form of hiding. After months incommunicado, on the 23rd of May, the world finally got to hear from one of the Skripals. Yulia issued a press statement and a brief video released to the Reuters news agency. In it, Yulia stated she was lucky to be alive after the poisoning and thanked the staff at the Salisbury Hospital. She described her treatment as having been extremely painful and that she had a scar on her neck from the tracheotomy. Yulia said she hoped that someday she would return to Russia, thanking staff at the Russian embassy for their offer of assistance. However, Yulia added that she and her father were not ready to take any help from the Russian government. This brief message was the last time that anyone, including their family in Russia, has heard from either of the Skripals. More drama was yet to come, including the poisoning of two other people in Salisbury. But before we progress any further, let's take a step back. Who was Sergei Skripal? Well, he was born in the Kaliningrad region of Russia in 1951. In the early 70s, Skripal completed a course in an engineering school before going on to study at the Military Engineering Academy in Moscow he went on to serve in the Soviet Army as a paratrooper, where he was deployed to Afghanistan. Skripal then transferred to the main Intelligence Directorate of the Soviet Armed Forces, also known as the GRU. After the fall of the USSR in the early 1990s, the GRU continued, little changed, as the Military Intelligence Department of the Russian Armed Forces. Skripal was sent to be the GRU officer at the Russian embassy in Malta. In 1994, he was transferred to Spain, where he became the military attaché at the embassy in Madrid. It was here that his life would change dramatically and irrevocably. In 1995, Skripal was turned, recruited to Britain's secret intelligence service, a.k.a. MI6 his British handler in Spain was a man named Pablo Miller. Under the assumed name Antonio Alvarez de Hidalgo, this British intelligence officer extracted information from Skripal over a number of years in exchange for money. In 1996, Skripal was sent back to Moscow to work at the GRU headquarters. However, his relationship with Pablo Miller and MI6 continued as he made many subsequent visits to Spain. Due to ill health, Skrupal took early retirement from the army in 1999, though he continued to carry out work for the Russian government, at first in the foreign ministry before transferring to an administrative role in Moscow. It has been suggested that during his years in the service of MI6, Skrupal blew the cover of some 300 Russian intelligence agents working in embassies around the world. But in December 2004, his luck ran out. He was arrested outside his home in Moscow, shortly after returning from a visit to Britain. He was tried for treason in a military court, found guilty, and sentenced to 13 years in prison. The sentence was actually much lighter than he might have expected, a sign that he had cooperated with the Russian authorities. I assume by giving them information about his relationship with Pablo Miller and MI6. However, Skripal was not detained in Russia for very long. In 2010, he was freed as part of a spy swap with the United States. Skripal and three other Russians convicted of having been foreign agents were swapped for 10 Russian agents that had been arrested in the United States. Skripal was included in this swap as a favour by the Americans to their cousins in MI6. He was put on a plane in Moscow and flown to Britain. There he moved to Salisbury, in the charming English county of Wiltshire. He purchased a house there. Well, more likely Her Majesty's government purchased a house for him. And why Salisbury? Well, why not? It's a charming place, an ancient cathedral city with lots of cobbled streets and old buildings. It's in a rural setting, but it's not too far from London. If you're going to be an exile, then it's not a bad place to end up. But there are quite a few such historic towns in England, so why Salisbury in particular? Could it be, I wonder, because a certain Mr. Pablo Miller, his old MI6 case officer, also happened to live there? For it seems Mr. Miller had retired there after the Russian FSB Security Service publicly outed him as an MI6 officer. There is a saying that spies never truly retire, and that seems to have been the case with Miller. During the investigation into the alleged Novichok poisoning, a waitress at a Salisbury restaurant reported that Sergei Skripal came into the restaurant every month to have lunch with someone she called the man in the tweed suit. When a curious journalist showed her a few pictures of people who Skripal might have known from his days in the spying game, the waitress picked out the photo of Pablo Miller. Next week, we're going to look at Miller and other MI6 personnel who have a connection to Skripal. But for now, suffice it to say, it appears that Sergei had an ongoing relationship with British intelligence. Which implies that, Far from being the ex-spy that the British media usually referred to him as, Skripal was still an active participant in the game. There are other signs that Sergei remained in contact with fellow Russians from the world of espionage and private security work, and that he travelled extensively across Eastern Europe and parts of the former Soviet Union. There are even reports that he worked with Spanish prosecutors investigating Russian-organized crime in Spain. This is the same investigation that Alexander Litvinenko was engaged in at the time of his death by poisoning in 2006. By the way, we have a mini-episode about Litvinenko and the Russian Mafia in Spain, which is available on our Patreon page. Anyway, Yulia Skripal came to live in Britain with her father in 2010. She lived with him for about four years before moving back home to Russia. She occasionally travelled to Salisbury to visit her father, and there appeared to be nothing exceptional about her trip to England in March 2018. Sergei and Yulia had already been through a lot in recent years, aside from the high drama of his espionage work. Sergei's wife, Yulia's mother, died after a struggle with cancer in 2012. Then Sergei's son, Yulia's brother, died in St. Petersburg, Russia in 2017. I've seen conflicting reports as to his cause of death, but it seems he either died of liver failure or in a car crash. And then the Skripals narrowly avoided further tragedy on the streets of Salisbury, surviving their apparent encounter with the incredibly deadly poison called Novichok. But two other people in Salisbury were less lucky. In the summer of 2018, a couple out for a walk in the park would make a strange but fateful decision that would cost one of them her life. We'll take a quick break now, and when we come back, we will look into the fate of the next alleged victims of Novichok, Don Sturgis and Charlie Rowley. And we'll ask, what is Novichok? Where does it come from? Why is it so dangerous to those who might come into contact with it? And how was it that this rare and deadly toxin spread across a quiet corner of England? We'll be right back. For the last couple of episodes, I've been bigging up our listener survey, and I want to take a minute to say thank you for everyone who took the time to visit our website and fill it out. One of our goals for 2019 is to try and turn Assassinations podcast into our real job, and finding out more about you, our listeners, helps inform how we move forward in doing that. If you haven't had the chance to take our survey, you'll find it linked at the top of our website. Just go to assassinationspodcast.com and click Survey at the top of the page. Thanks again for all your support with this. It really does mean a lot. Now, back to the show. So what is Novichok and where does it come from? Well, it's not just one toxin. Rather, it's a name that was given by a Russian scientist to a family of nerve agents that were developed by the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Little is known about the impact of these toxins on the human body, as they were never deployed by the Soviet military. However, in theory, these are exceptionally dangerous substances. Novichok might be used in order to cause, among other potential symptoms, respiratory and cardiac arrest, and flooding of the lungs in the intended victim. The UK government claimed that the Novichok agent used in the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal must, therefore, have come from Russia. In a statement to the British Parliament, Prime Minister Theresa May said, Either this was a direct action by the Russian state against our country, or the Russian government lost control of its potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent and allowed it to get into the hands of others. British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson then stated that government scientists had proved beyond doubt that the toxin used to poison the Skripals was of Russian origin. Asked by a journalist how he managed to know so definitively that Russia had to have been responsible, Johnson replied, when I look at the evidence, the people from Porton Down, the laboratory, they were absolutely categorical. I mean, I asked the guy myself, I said, are you sure? And he said, there's no doubt. And so we, well, we have very little alternative but to take the action that we have taken against Russia. Unfortunately for Mr Johnson, his assertion elicited a contradictory public response from Gary Aitkenhead, the chief executive of Porton Down the head of Britain's Biological and Chemical Weapons Laboratory stated, We were able to identify it as Novichok, to identify that it was military-grade nerve agent. We have not identified the precise source, but we have provided the scientific info to the government, which has then been used with a number of other sources to piece together the conclusions. In a not-so-subtle rebuke to Boris Johnson and the UK government, Aitkenhead added, It is our job to provide the scientific evidence of what this particular nerve agent is, but it is not our job to say where it was manufactured. Ouch. The British claim that a Novichok was used in Salisbury was later confirmed by analysis carried out by the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. However, this organisation could not determine where the nerve agent might have come from either. If we are to believe the British government, it's a sure thing that the nerve agent seemingly used to poison the Skripals must have come from Russia. But the truth might be rather more complex. Actually, the chemical composition of the family of nerve agents known as Novichoks is no great Russian secret. A number of national biochemical laboratories around the world have developed Novichoks since the 1990s. For example, under an international agreement, Iranian scientists synthesized these agents that were then used for analysis by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. The information from this study is contained in a database that can be accessed by all signatories to international chemical weapons treaties. Scientists from Germany, Sweden, and the United States are all on record as having developed, studied, or utilised Novichok agents. And one can assume that the British scientists at Porton Down also knew about Novichoks, and may have already developed samples, as they were very quickly able to identify the toxic substance in Salisbury. There are some claims that these nerve agents, as well as other very dangerous materials, including nuclear weapons, went walkabout during the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. We heard, for example, in our episode on Alexander Litvinenko, that there may have been an incomplete nuclear suitcase bomb offered for sale on the illegal arms market in the early 2000s, a weapon that might have been pilfered from the ex-Soviet arsenal in the early 1990s. However, the main Soviet facility that developed the family of Novichoks was closed down years before, under international observation. The Soviet Chemical Research Institute was located in the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic. Britain's former ambassador to Uzbekistan, a man named Craig Murray, has stated that he visited the newly decommissioned facility in 2002. He pointed out that it was the United States government that had been in charge of decommissioning the facility and removing materials back to America for analysis and disposal. Craig Murray also said that there were other places in the former USSR where chemical weapons might have been developed and stored, perhaps even to this day, in particular Ukraine. Others have said that Mr. Murray's claim that the Uzbek facility was the main place that Novichok's were developed and stored might not be correct. One chemical weapons expert, a former British Army officer, has insisted that Novichok's were only developed in the Russian Federal Socialist Republic during the Soviet era, and not in any of the other republics of the USSR. Regardless, I think it's fair to say that the Novichok cat is well and truly out of the proverbial bag, and that this particularly unpleasant family of toxins can now be made by many state, and perhaps also non-state, actors. Prior to the Salisbury incident, there isn't any evidence of a Novichok agent having been used to kill anyone. So, not much is practically known about its effects on the human body. Nor, therefore, is much of anything known about how to treat someone who's been so poisoned. It's a minor miracle, then, that Yulia and Sergei Skripal survived. Unfortunately, a few months after the Skripals were found in the streets of Salisbury, two more people were seemingly poisoned with the same substance. On June 30th, 2018, Charlie Rowley and Don Sturgis were rushed to Salisbury District Hospital. Ms. Sturgis had collapsed at her home in the village of Amesbury, just outside Salisbury, while her housemate, Mr. Rowley, was feeling very unwell. Their strange symptoms quickly led medics to believe that they might have been struck by the same nerve agent as the Skripals. The pair received medical care from doctors as well as experts from Porton Down who had assisted in the treatment of Yulia and Sergei. Sadly, on the 8th of July, Miss Sturgis passed away, after doctors made the decision to switch off her life support. Two days later, Mr. Rowley regained consciousness, and the following day his condition was reassessed from critical to serious but stable. Police began to question Rowley about what might have happened to them. The cause of their illness seemed clear, Novichok, but how had they come to be exposed to it? That was a mystery. After the Skripal incident, police and chemical weapons specialists had meticulously combed over the area in and around Salisbury, in one of the biggest public health operations in British history, searching for any signs of the highly toxic substance. But apart from Sergei Skripal's home, the city of Salisbury and the surrounding district appeared to be free from any signs of Novichok contamination. Rowley told quite a remarkable story about how he seemingly came into contact with the nerve agent. Apparently he and Sturgis had been walking in a park in Salisbury when he spotted a small box that appeared to contain a bottle of Nina Ricci perfume lying on the ground. He picked it up and took it home. Nine days later, Rowley said he opened the box with a kitchen knife as it was still wrapped in cellophane and took out the bottle inside. The bottle had its cap on, with a separate atomizer included in the box. He inserted the spray attachment and presented the bottle to Sturgis as a gift. She sprayed some on her wrists. Rowley said he got some of the liquid on his hands when he inserted the atomizer. He recalled that Sturgis started to feel unwell within 15 minutes of applying what they supposed to be Nina Ricci perfume. The death of Sturgis and the serious poisoning of Rowley were greeted with further shock and outrage by the British media and politicians. Here, it seemed, two totally innocent bystanders had become the victims of Novichok poisoning. A British citizen had now died as a result of what was almost universally characterised as a Russian government operation. Addressing the House of Commons, a British government spokesman stated that the police had a strong working assumption that the couple had come into contact with Novichok in a location that had not been cleaned up following the Skripal incident. He added, It is now time that the Russian state comes forward and explains exactly what has gone on. It is completely unacceptable for our people to be either deliberate or accidental targets, or for our streets, our parks, our towns to be dumping grounds for poison. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister declared that no stone would be left unturned in the investigation into what had happened. There followed several months of relative quiet, for little progress seemed to be made in the search for who might be responsible for the alleged intentional poisoning of the scrupals and the seemingly accidental poisoning of Don Sturgis and Charlie Rowley. Then, a story broke in October 2018 that seemed to clench the case against the Russian government. There were two positive IDs of Russian men in Salisbury on the day the Skripals fell ill, and a British investigative journalism website had linked one of them to a photograph of a known officer of the Russian Federal Security Service. But as we shall see in the next part of our story, there is much that remains unknown. And controversial about the alleged assassins. And, more generally, there are many mysterious elements to examine in the case of Sergei Skripal and the poisoned perfume. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. Next week we'll pick up our story looking at the relationship between Sergei Skripal and Britain's secret intelligence service, better known as MI6. We will also examine the connection between Mr. Skripal, a private security firm run by two former British intelligence officers, and the 2016 US presidential election. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this will be a three-part investigation. There's so much to unpack, as the drama takes us from Russia, to Britain, to the United States. And as we've seen in previous episodes this season, there's more to this case than meets the eye. This episode was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Sound editing and design are by Lindsay Morse. Our theme music was created by Graham Ronald. You can follow us on Twitter, at Assassins Pod. To learn more about the people featured in today's episode, visit our website, assassinationspodcast.com. And if you have a few minutes, please click the link at the top of our website to take our quick listener survey. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask for your help in spreading the word about us. As an independent show, we rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to help us grow. If you have a friend who'd love our unique blend of history and storytelling, please send them a text with a link to our website, assassinationspodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, goodbye.